Awesome. Great. <laughs> I was going to do the mics for the sake of the podcast, but um, I'll record with my phone. So. Will we be able to get questions from you? Oh. We yeah. can hold mics if you'd like. It's just... Just a little in person. There's not that many people here. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, we'll stick with the phone. Or we can repeat the question into the. Yeah, yeah perfect. Okay, awesome. So, uh, we're not going to take time to sing together, but it's important that we do everything we do as a community out of a spirit of worship. And we all know that worship is not just the songs we sing, but it's, uh, it encompasses all of life. And uh, I just think it, it's important that on a, it's important for us to approach these sorts of matters with humility and with an open heart. And I think that uh, coming into an awareness of the presence of the Holy Spirit in an environment like this, to know that God blesses this and to know that this as an act of worship is part of all of life, what we discuss and what we consider. Um, I think it's, it's good for us to approach these sorts of things and to not think, oh, okay, because, you know, this morning I mentioned we're loving God with our minds. So some people go, okay, I'm going to turn everything else off and leave my brain on. When in reality, you know, God is present um, in everything. And we can feel the, we can cultivate an awareness of the presence of the Holy Spirit as we do theology, as we consider new ideas, as we ask questions and search for truth. So uh, in the spirit of Thanksgiving, I want you to just close your eyes and get into a receiving posture. <laughs> and I know this is like the cheesiest, most cliche Christian thing to do on Thanksgiving, but I would like you to just meditate for just a minute on something that you are thankful for. And you know that an awareness of the presence of the Lord is opening up in your heart when as you meditate, you become overcome with the gratitude that you feel for the thing you are thankful for. (laughs) Just dwell long enough for it to hit you, (laughs) whatever it is. For me, it's that my daughter now grabs my face when she wants a kiss. She turns me and she puts her bottom lip on mine. I'm thankful for her. <laughs> Frank, what are you thankful for? Well, it's funny you should ask, because we asked this last night on the table. And uh, I said I was thankful for Jesus. I said baby Jesus, because Ruben was there. <laughs> but really, I'm really thankful for Thankful for family. That's awesome. Anyone else? I know I can always pick on Frank. You might have to ask this crowd. Okay. Cass, what are you thankful for? Thankful for health of my family. Yeah. Awesome. Caleb, what are you thankful for? I know I can pick on my life group members. <laughs> my fiance. 
Hey. Good answer. Good answer. <laughs> Shannon, what are you thankful for? I'm thankful for this church. Coming from where I did, I'm so thankful that I have a church that is home to me and that I can grow and be nourished. And it's also my job, too. So <laughs> I'm, I'm very thankful. That's awesome. Wonderful. So God, as we do, uh, as we talk and discuss things and consider things, I just pray that uh, not just your blessing would be uh, on what we say and what we consider, but that uh, a tangible awareness of your presence in all things and here with us would lead and guide us as we, uh, as we talk, as we discuss, and as we consider these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, most, I think most of you <clears throat> were here this morning, so... He doesn't uh, need uh, an intense introduction, but the only thing I would want to add to uh, what I said this morning is that the longer I have spent time with Stephen and Claire, the more genuine I have discovered them to be. And uh, they were genuine right from the beginning, but sometimes when people are really kind and loving, you're like, is this ministry professionalism? Like, is this like... Because I'm just being honest, as a pastor, sometimes you are kind because you are expected to be kind, right? It's not a bad thing. It's just you start with kindness, right? And uh, the more I've gotten to know them, the more I realize, like, they genuinely love people. They genuinely care for them. And they care to remember them and to draw out their heart. And when I spend time with them, I feel known and cared for. And uh, that means a lot to me. And so I just want you to know that as a friend of theirs, but also as a leader here, I trust them both. And we always say that we are trying to teach you not what to think, but how to think. So we have to be humble enough to consider things in a new way and brave enough to not consider what we believe about God to be a big Jenga tower that will fall with, you know, the simple one block removed and the whole thing tumbles over, right? So, uh, Let's have both of those things. Humility and bravery as we go into this. And uh, yeah, turn it over to you, Stephen. <laughs> Sounds like you're expecting me to knock over. No, no, no. I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you want to, I know that Claire had a, did you want to share your testimony or do you want to do it later? Okay, fine. Claire and I like work together, but if you give me space, I'll just not stop talking. So... <laughs> I have to learn to very deliberately just stop talking to allow <laughs> Claire time to, to, to say things. But you will wave your hand, won't you, Claire? When you <laughs> well, how did you want to do this? Did you want to just have people ask? I mean, if you yeah, like, wanted to ask a theologian, I can at least start to talk about it. I don't know if I could answer it, but I can start to talk about it. I have, I have questions myself that I can definitely fill the space with. So, yeah. <laughs> There's no end of the list of things I could, I would want to pick uh, Stephen's brain shall about. Shall I start a little bit? You did say to talk a little bit about my story, but I don't. Not to talk about myself, but more to talk about what I think we're doing here, even tonight. Sure. Um, it's part of my little vision that I shared with you this morning about wanting to bring theology back into the local church was. We're quite used to. I mean, I don't know if I've, I don't. I'm not. I don't know. But there is such... Have you, have you ever heard of apologetics? Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of like... You bring somebody in and they give a 
clever answer to your complicated questions and it's like here's three things if somebody doesn't believe in god here's three arguments that will knock you know knock down all their objections <laughs> and you know if somebody doesn't believe in the resurrection here's how you argue them into you know and i grew up with that and i'm not saying it's useless i'm not saying it's useless but that's not what i'm doing <laughs> that that's not what theology is right um i'm not trying to just provide clever answers to complicated questions. I'm trying to provide the best theologians I ever met, the, old, the ones who've really lived it, who've lived in a Christian and Christianly trying to work out their how to think Christianly about themselves and about their world. They are well, it's a little bit like Connor said, that they don't live in a brittle world where if you take out one block, everything falls. They live in a world in which they say do you know what? Christianity is complicated. And it is possible to be a Christian and believe in evolution. And it is possible to be a Christian and believe in the, the, the first two books of Genesis are literally true. You know, it is possible to believe in Christianity and support abortion. It is possible to be a Christian and chain yourself to abortion clinics and be a pro Like, it is possible. And it is possible to have questions about whether hell exists or not or whatever. Like, there's a lot of things which... A, th- a lot of Christians are very brittle and they're like, you can't possibly disagree with this one topic because then everything will come collapsing around you. And the more time I've spent around people who, who are living a little bit more of a theological existence, they're not brittle that way. Mm-hmm. They have space to say, we can talk about this stuff and it's not scary. And just talking about it doesn't mean we, be- we believe it. Like just talking about you know, hell or whatever. It doesn't mean that we're absolutely making a rock solid. This is what we as a whole church believe. And if you want to join us, you have to believe this. That's not what we're doing here. I'm trying to help create a space for us Christianly to think and disagree with each other Christianly. Right? And it isn't about like saying, here's what we, uh, this is not what's going to happen tonight. I'm not going to be giving you the position on the awakening position on whatever topic. I'm just saying, no, this is how Christians have thought about it. This is what I think about it. But like, if you disagree with me, if you think I'm your enemy, well, Jesus said you're supposed to love me, so. <laughs> you know, like, how do we, how, how do we as Christians, what, what we bring to the table as Christians is not a clever answer to a complicated question. We bring a different posture. We don't try and kill our enemies. We don't try and dominate them. Like, and that includes through argument. You know, that includes being right and then not trying to force other people to follow you. Or whatever, like so. This is that's the kind of thing I'm trying to do with. Yeah. So even in this space now, I'm like, hey, ask your complicated questions, and I might not. I probably won't have an answer. There isn't the answer to a lot of these questions, but but there are Christians who have thought about it, and I could say, well, here's how we here's how we start to think about these things. Does yeah. that make sense? That's awesome. Yeah, and it's an act of worship. So theology isn't talking theology isn't talking about God so much as as Real theology is worship of God. And Connor's already started to allude to that. Real theology is, theologians are trying to speak as excellently about God as possible. So they're just trying to preserve what was handed on to them. You know, what the forefathers handed on to us, I pass on to you. That's a, you know, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to speak about God as excellently as possible, which we know means you can't just talk about it. James says if you just talk a lot, if you have the right doctrine, but you don't love widows and orphans, then your religion is worthless. So when we say speak excellently about God as possible, we mean like 
<laughs> in relationship with, in a communion relationship, in a worshiping fellowship. Like, you can't just speak excellently about God if you're not plugged into a, a worshiping community. Right. So theology is part of church life together. You know, and it's part of our worship to God. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, there you go. That's great. <laughs> That's awesome. So I'm going <clears> to <throat> ask my question first because I am uh, sitting up here. That's, this is the first question, Chair. That's what this is. You've talked a lot about uh, the political mm-hmm. aspects of the yep. Gospels and the political nature of the message of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And for myself, uh, I, I, I had just left... Uh, Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, mm-hmm. and the first person that caused me to, or I, I guess the the way I began to consider the political implications of the things Jesus had said was, I began to, uh, at first it was kind of a Jenga tower, I began to question different things mm-hmm. regarding the nature of the Father and Jesus being the nature of Christ, and then that led me kind of tumbling headlong into reconsidering you know, what does it mean to say Jesus is Lord and what does it mean that he's ruling and reigning now and that his vision, his expression of God is the supreme and only revelation that we hold. And uh, <clears throat> as a consequence of that, I, I began to see that Christianity in North America is maybe strong in certain areas, but it's hampered by mixing... Mm-hmm. itself into politics it's mixing itself into you know different matters of the economy sometimes and uh, there's a long tradition of you know maybe mm-hmm. trying to create a Christian nation mm-hmm. I think for me to distill it to a story was I was I was in Reading and there was a gathering of Canadians that were talking about taking their nation back taking mm-hmm. our nation back for God mm-hmm. so there's like 30 of us in the house they were talking about how, because Psalm 72, 8 says, he shall have dominion from sea to sea, that the, the role of the church was to kind of win Canada back for God. And the sign of that would be that all these bad things that we didn't like wouldn't happen anymore and that the church would be in positions of influence. And I technically agreed with them at that point. I, I went through the checklist and I was like, I, I agree with all those things, but I'm also uncomfortable and I don't know why I'm uncomfortable. So coming from Canada, being in the UK. Yeah. I know this is a long preliminary to the question. Coming from Canada, being in the UK, having experience in America, you have, you have experienced the width and the breadth of the, we'll call it the Western church. So where do you think we're at as far as... I've experienced the width and breadth of the Western church. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean you've, you've traveled, you've seen yeah, it, you've yeah. studied, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I think... You know, for, for maybe many people here, the, 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 the philosophy of Kierkegaard might be new. It might be not yeah. something that they've necessarily referenced in their life. But like... What? Really? <laughs> what is the... What would, what would you say is kind of the, the inroad for people to reconsider some things? I think I'm chiefly yeah, okay. concerned because Canadians don't think of themselves as political people. So we don't have uh, controversial leaders. Yeah. And we don't have... Uh, we don't have a church that seems to a church that seems to go hand in hand with politics, but yeah. we're still part of the the larger culture. So, what do you see as far as where the church is at, especially in Canada, when it comes to politics, and and what is the the right relationship of the church to politics? Well, so I am a political theologian, so this is pro- partly why Connor's asking all these questions because I am specifically interested in how 
nations and nationalism relates to Christianity. That was what I did all my first my doctorate in, and um, and that's what I'm particularly interested in. And so, the the work I was doing, I was doing a work on how does Christianity relate to your patriotism? You know, should Christians be patriotic and that kind of stuff? And I know I don't think so is my headline, and, and I'll explain why. But um, and then as and then as I was doing that work, which was set in the modern era, I started to think historically. Well, how did earlier Christians relate to their countries and things? And then as you go further back in history, you end up at the New Testament, which is why I now speak, preach almost uh, constantly from the New Testament. Because, but for me, it's, it's like I was a theologian for 20 years and then I discovered the New Testament. I, I backed into it uh, in, a, in a sort of a way. And I, I joke about that, but it's almost kind of true. I didn't begin my life by reading the New Testament thinking, oh, wow, this is really relevant. I actually began my life reading, my Christian life, reading a, a, theologian, a philosopher named Kierkegaard, who was a Danish guy who died in the 19th century, died in 1855 in Denmark. But his whole goal in life was to reintroduce Christianity into Christendom. And his argument was Christendom is... It's not just an official relationship between church and state. It's not just the established church. Christendom is the fact that we have streets named after saints. We have cities, St. Paul's, you know, or St. Louis or whatever. We have um, churches in, in Saskatoon are landmarks. So, oh, just turn right at the, you know, at the United Church and then, you, and then you'll find your way. Like, they, Christianity and the, the furniture of Christianity is, is literally like the furniture or backdrop to our lives. Um, you know, Kierkegaard says if I, he, he talks about how roughly speaking, um, when the Apostle Paul stood up in the marketplace and said the name of Jesus, nobody had ever heard that name before. Right. When I go to a marketplace and say the name of Jesus, people think I've stubbed my toe. Right? Yeah. right? Like, there is nobody in our society that has not heard the name of Jesus. Right. There are, most people who've heard the name of Jesus don't know anything about him. I'm not saying they're all Christians. Everybody has heard the name of Jesus. There is nobody in our society who doesn't have, hasn't heard the word Christian or Christ or Christmas or they don't understand it, but they, they've all heard it. And just the fact that they've heard it, that's what Kierkegaard means by Christendom. Like it's just part of the backdrop of society. Yeah. Right. And he was really interested, like, what does it mean now for us to be Christians in a world in which, well, for him, it was in Denmark. People say, are you Christian? And the Danes look at their hand. They go, well, I'm white and I speak Danish. Right. So I'm a Christian. So for, they just associate it with being a good citizen of their country. Yeah. And I was reading this and I was thinking, wow, he's describing evangelicalism that I grew up in. Yeah. I grew up in Bible Belt, Alberta. Sure. You know? People who totally just associate their being a... And then you really see it in America as well, in the States, right? It's just this idea that being a good Christian and winning your nation back for Christ are the same thing, or that there's such a thing as a Christian nation even in the first place. And I'm reading Kierkegaard, and he's saying, the idea of a Christian nation is the reason why Christianity no longer exists in our world. <laughs> like, far from him saying, oh, it's our job in life to take back the nation for Christ, he's like... This concept that there's such a thing as a Christian nation is the antichrist. It's the reason why Christianity is so impossible to find in this world. Because so many people think that being a Christian is the same as being a certain type of 
Canadian or something like that, you know? Yeah. So it's really, like, hard-hitting. It really kind of makes you sit up. And, and that's what got me into thinking about it in the first place. And, um, <clears throat> and then you have to think about what does being political mean. And I think what I've been noticing is that from Kierkegaard and other people who I've been informed by, they, they've started to say, like, we live in a world, in a culture, which... We have all the resources of the New Testament. We have the language of King Jesus and kingdoms and gospel. I talked about this, the gospel being your rightful ruler has come to break the siege. And we have the language in the New Testament of powers and principalities, which are about faceless institutions and, and demons and angels, but faceless powers which control our lives. And we get to have a say in them. And you have people talking in the New Testament about government and bureaucracy and inherited tradition and ethnic privilege and race relations and gender relations. And you just think, this is a hugely political set of documents. And the politics in the New Testament is not marginal to the New Testament. It's central. You can't talk about the Gospels without talking about the kingdom or kings. And those are, they are only political concepts, right? And so, um, so I'm reading some of these people, and they're saying, our modern Christian imagination of what it is to be political has shriveled. So we have all these Christians who have all these resources to hand, think, to have their imagination shaped by the kingdom. And then it's shriveled to the point where they vote for the red team so the blue team doesn't win. Like, what happened to your Christian political imagination? We are part of a movement that predates. Oh, can I tell you a fun story? So, you know, David Cameron was the Prime Minister of the UK a few years ago. And I got invited. I was, I taught at an Anglican institution, Church of England institution, and I got invited to every year at Downing Street, which is the, where the Prime Minister lives and has his offices in London. I got invited to a a function, like every year for Easter, he kind of invites the Christians to Downing Street. And it's, you know, it's a photo opportunity. And I got invited to this. And there was about 200 of us in the room, and David Cameron is going around shaking everybody's hands. And there's a photographer who's, photographer who's, shaking, who's taking our picture as we go around. So David Cameron comes around to me, and he shakes my hand, and he says something. I can't even remember, and I, I laugh. He, we have a little joke, and we laugh about something, and then he moves on. And we talked a little bit about food banks. And then we move on. Anyway, the next day, the Downing Street, number 10 Downing Street, decides to use my, the picture of me meeting David Cameron as the picture of David Cameron meets Christians. And that was the picture they issued in their press release, and it got on the news of me like, la shaking his hand and laughing was the picture, right? And I would get all these... So then I was getting texts and stuff saying, oh, I saw you sucking up to David Cameron. And I really honestly said, you know what? He was sucking up to me. Because I am a member of a movement that predates the nation of England by 2,000, 1,600 years or something. I, I am part of a movement that has multiple languages, multiple skin colors, any nation on earth you can imagine, I am part of, uh, there's people in that nation who are part of my movement. Like, my movement helped to create the nation of England, and it will outlast the nation of England. 
my movement has members on it who are part of the Conservative Party and the Labour Party and the Liberal Party and the NDP and the Communists and the... You know what I mean? Like, my movement is so much bigger than anything David Cameron was ever part of. He needs me, right? And my politics is not... Uh, when I say I'm political, I don't mean like my politics begin and, and ends with I vote every four years for the blue team so the red team doesn't win or whatever. My politics is part of being a member of this movement, which is living inside other movements, which my movement claims my allegiance more than it claims the other ones. It's asking me to live as a person of peace. So it, my movement is not asking me to destroy the nation of Canada because it is evil and must go away or anything like that. But my, the movement I'm a part of says your allegiance to Jesus is more important than your allegiance to any other group that you're a part of. And that comes with consequences and implications, and so I have to work that out. But it's like a super political act for me to be a Christian. Any of us are. So politics is more than just being party politics or voting. So when saying, what is your Christian relationship to politics? I'm like, if you are a Christian, you are already a political. Like, you have already voted with your bodies where you want to be tonight. This morning, you voted with your bodies to be here. You voted to congregate with each other more than you vote with your bodies voted to congregate with something else. That was a political act with social economic consequences. How we choose to spend our money, how we choose to, um, the, the kind of people we choose to marry or not to marry, the kind of people we choose to give um, advice to or help to or money to or assistance to. These are all political acts. So I'm not a lot of my job is not saying, hey, Christians, I want you to get more political. It's just to say, you are already political. Let's pay attention to the fact that we're part of a movement, a social, economic, we have our own laws, <laughs> we have our own ethics, we have our own literature, we have our own language. We are a political movement already. Learning how to live with other ones around us, right? So we're supposed to serve these things, we're supposed to seek the peace of the city, we're supposed to submit to the ruling authorities, but that is a far cry from like submitting to the ruling authorities, which Paul talks about in Romans 13 um, and, and elsewhere in the New Testament. It's, he says, give to Caesar what is owed to Caesar. He doesn't say give to Caesar what Caesar asks for. Because Caesar asks for way more than he's owed. <laughs> and Paul, and it's the same teaching that Jesus had with the coin. He's like, when you... You give to Caesar what's on his, what, what has his, his image. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a, an ethic or a teaching of like, we're going to render with discrimination. We don't give to our nations everything they ask for. We give to our nations what they're owed. And who gets to decide what they're owed? We do. You know, Paul and Jesus are saying, this is how you determine what your nations are owed. And it's not a teaching of like armed rebellion but it's not a teaching of patriotic, you know, line up and just jump. When if they say jump, we say how high. It's, that is not the teaching. In fact, for somebody like Paul, it's very specifically. He's like, in Romans 12, he says, Christians, don't seek wrath. Don't seek vengeance. That's not for you. And then in 13, he says, the government seeks vengeance. In Paul's imagination, he's asking the Christians not to do the very thing that he says the government is supposed to do in the very next few verses. So in my mind, I'm like, well, there's a complicated issue now. What is my relationship to government? But 
like I said, it's not answering the question. It's just saying, in Paul's mind, there was a Christians were not supposed to seek wrath. That was for the government to do, which makes me wonder, you know, how far can we go in government, you know? And I know we've got people in politics here. But, like, those are the kind of questions which I, I, I want Christians to start asking each other. Like, how, to what extent can we move forward in our nation's government and still be true to, to Christianity? Which is not a question a lot of Christians ask in our world. Um, and one thing you really notice is that, that we use the language of King Jesus all the time, but almost inevitably, as soon as it gets to the point where obeying King Jesus would mean, I've heard this all the time, Sermon on the Mount is great, but you can't run a country that way. Right? Yeah, you're right. Can't run a country according to the Sermon on the Mount. So if you say, well, I'll only obey Jesus up until the point that it's bad for my country, well, you have now committed idolatry. Right? So, like, how do we live this? How do we act this way together in ways that stay faithful? So there's a lot of actions that, we, that our countries ask us to do, to do with violence or money or... Or, or kind of tribalism, like the idea that, you know, only people who look like me and sound like me as much as possible, they're the ones who, are, who, who, who I owe my allegiance to or my money to, right? So we have all these issues about immigration or whatever. And it gets wrapped up with the idea that, well, this is our patch of land and we rightfully, this belongs to us. And we kind of forget that, like, Jesus had some really specific things to say precisely about that issue. And, but we just kind of ignore it. Like, oh, well, Jesus didn't really mean that. You know, um, well, like a good example would be the, 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 if, a soul, if somebody makes you take a pack and you, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, the turn the other cheek, which is a famous one. But then also if somebody makes you carry a load and then you, uh, uh, if somebody makes you carry their load, for, for, you carry it for one mile. If they make you carry another mile, you go with them the extra mile. Well, the, that is specifically referring to the Roman soldiers. They, they were an evil, alien, occupying force. And they were running the country. And the Jews, who are the chosen people of God, they were in a situation where the Romans were allowed to make anybody carry their pack one mile. And it was part of the Roman law. And if the Roman soldier made any of the subjugated race uh, carry the pack two miles... You, within your rights, you could even drop the pack. And you could take, you, you could take, a lowly Jew could take a Roman soldier to court, and the courts would find in your favor, because the Roman soldier's not allowed to do that. Rome wasn't the Wild West, you know, it ran its empire according to laws, rule of law. And Jesus comes along and he's like, hey, you know that evil ruling foreign empire <laughs> that's running us right now? You know how it's with, you're within your rights? To, to resist them, I don't want you to do it. So when he says that, he's, heard, it, he's not heard as like, it's not like a personal ethic of if somebody you don't like asks you, you just go the extra mile with them. It's a public, it's, he's actually making a comment about patriotism. He's like saying, the same with the coins actually, the, 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 the coin story when Jesus, they come to Jesus and they say, should we pay the temple tax? Should we pay the tax? And the tax that the, the Pharisees are asking Jesus about is the tax that Caesar was levying on the Jews for the right to worship in their own temple. It was a racial insult. It, was a, it wasn't a tax to keep the lagoon going <laughs> or the lights on. It wasn't a civic municipal tax. 
it was a it was a racial insult designed to say to the Jews, you think your God is so special? Well, you have to pay me for the right to go to your own temple, right? So when the people come to him and say, Jesus, should we pay this tax? They're not asking, should we participate in municipal government? They're saying, are you patriotic? Right? They're saying, what do you think? Should we participate in this racial insult or resist it? And Jesus says, pay the tax. He actually says, yeah. He makes an, an anti-patriotic statement. He's like, don't go with your, you got more important things in life than protecting what's rightfully yours, right? And that's the ethic that comes in again and again and again in the New Testament. Don't grab tightly to what's rightfully yours, even if it is rightfully yours. Because you've got bigger things to worry about. You know, I don't leave you as orphans. I'm always filling you up. There's always more to go around. You don't operate in a place of limited resources. Like, so much of the teaching in the New Testament is one of, like, you don't have to fight to protect the limited goods and protect them from other people, specifically from foreigners. And so I just see that as, like, a real political teaching. And so when I now today as a modern person with politics, I'm like, well, how much of our politics today is about trying to preserve and protect what's rightfully yours and protect it from foreigners? It's not irrelevant today. And, it, and it's not that Jesus is this theoretical person who's like, yeah, but we live in the real world. It's like, no, he lived in the, when he says these things, there's people with pointy swords looking at him. Right. He's living in that world. Yeah. And he's saying, I want, this is how I want you to act. So that's a political act, even if it has nothing to do with voting. Right. So as a, I'm not a, you asked a long-winded question, but I gave it a long-winded no, answer. I, I just wanted to wind you up. <laughs> that was the goal. Um, Take as long as it needs. Yeah. So, so you know, that's ultimately why I, I, I had this conclusion a while ago that I just, I can't love, being a patriot is not really an option for Christians. Because we, used to, we now think being patriotic is a virtue, but for the first three centuries, they, they thought it was a vice, early Christians. They thought of patriotism as a temptation to be weaned off of because it was your fatherland or your country or your state which was claiming your ultimate allegiance. And to do it, it would rely on the sentiment of family language or tribal language, or right? And the early Christians were like, ooh, that's a, that's a strong temptation. We need to avoid that temptation because there is another group of people out there that are asking us to kill our enemies and to lay down our lives for them. And, and, but we've got Jesus who said, oh, your neighbor is the person whose need you've become aware of. It's not the person who shares your nationality, for example. Um, and so it, you realize that like some really core Jesus teaching is specifically about national allegiance, ethnic affiliation, and how important that is or not. So today, when I'm a part of a culture which sort of claims that as a Christian, it's my patriotic duty to make Canada be the best Canada it can be, I just say, no, it's not actually. Um, that isn't my job as a Christian. It doesn't mean I hate Canada. I've come back. I willingly come back. You know, I miss my people. But it doesn't mean I love... Just because I don't love this institution that we have created and called Canada doesn't mean that I hate it. So I'm trying to find out, well, how do you chart that middle ground as a Christian where you can live in this world and serve it and lay your life down and even act politically for it without giving it the ultimate authority 
without killing for it or dying for it even, which causes all sorts of, you know, probably people in this room right now that are offended I even said that, right? Um, so, you know, and, and it is offensive. Like, it doesn't take long to get to the point where you're like, wow, okay. Yeah, I, I can see that some of these issues are, are, are front and center to our politics. No, it's, you mentioned it this morning, the concept of salvation by allegiance. Yeah. And I was thinking about that because uh, the, early, the earliest Christians were accused of essentially being a type of atheist towards the, yeah. towards the gods, the patron gods of Rome. Yeah. And then my understanding, and of course you would be the guy to correct me if I'm wrong, but was not Kierkegaard accused of a type of anti-Christian or atheistic? Yeah. Like, because he was not received by... Yeah the church of the time. So I think it's interesting yeah. that when you, when you take a hardline allegiance to, to Jesus and to his kingdom in a political sense, you run headlong into a culture that uh, considers you to be, the moment you tear down someone else's Id idolatry or you expose mm -hmm. their idolatry, it, it creates a certain vitriol and a certain uh, antagonism inside the church and outside the church. Well, okay, so if God is the being in whom we live and God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being, okay? So now think about how many other uh, claim, rival claims there are. You know, we, we were part of, I talked about us, we're, we're a member of a movement which in the middle of other movements and you think of the other things that want to claim that it's, no, it's in us that you live and move and have your being. You're, and, and you, you see this all the time. You see the um, religious language, sacred language being used. So I've heard it's your sacred duty to vote. Um, or soldiers laid down the ultimate sacrifice. These are all religious language being used to apply to, to the running of the state. So, so that's where I get worried. It's not that I think voting is bad or that soldiers were the worst things that ever existed. I'm saying, like, these are not sacred these are not divine, and you need to watch out. Like this, we're part of these worlds, which our countries and stuff assume a divine aspect for themselves, or we give it to them, where we say, oh, yeah, it's our ultimate allegiance and identity is with our nation, right. um, and, and it deserves our ultimate sacrifice. And like, no, it doesn't, right. you know, as a Christian, yeah. you know, and so that's where I'm really, that's where I started to pay attention to the sacred language that countries use to talk about themselves. Even the language of sovereignty, if you look at the, um, we talk about nations are sovereign nations. Um, a sovereign nation, the word sovereignty it used to apply only to God. God was the sovereign. And the architects of the modern nation state, basically the French Revolution onwards, American, America was a classic example, started to use this language of sovereignty to apply to them, to we the people. Um, another, another one is the, the will of the people. Or the general will is a political concept which is foundational to our modern democracy. The general will, the will of the people. The general will was a theological term which applied to God. And Rousseau, who was one of the architects of the modern nation state, he deliberately took that religious word and he made it apply to democracy. And so you see this all the time, some of these things. And, and some of these guys were deliberately trying to capture and, and um, harness the allegiance that people were showing to the church, and they were saying, let's do it to this nation now, right? So now, today, 200 years later, you see Christians who have totally bought that. They've totally drunk the Kool-Aid. 
and, uh, and, and, and that they are participating in idolatry and they don't know it. Right. You know, so this is why I'm like, oh, no, I need to be really careful. Mm-hmm. Once we start revering the furniture of state, then we're in trouble. Yeah, I love it. It's gone too far. When you said, the first time you said, be careful, you, I'm stealing your analogy. I hope you're not uncomfortable with me stealing this, but you said, you know, if you see like a, like a sexy advertisement oh, yeah. <laughs> on a bus or something. Because I grew up, you know, knowing that like La Senza, you get, you know, uh, lingerie. Yeah. lingerie shops. Yeah. You know, as a young man, you're like, I must keep myself pure. Right. You're like looking away. It's like this. You know, and, it, and then, of course, you grow into the world and you realize, okay, there are many things that are pulling for my affection and for my yeah. allegiance, but, I, but by being aware of it and by being cautious, I am able to live in the world and not be part of that, but to remain distinct from it for a different purpose. And you start to recognize, so uh, the analogy I used was that sometimes a flag fluttering in the breeze for me is, is this, it's, it's trying to attract my eyeballs and my attention in the same way that a a poster of a sexy lady is trying to attract my... And it's not that sexy ladies are bad, it's that my eyes are not supposed to be dwelling on that particular woman. You know, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to, to discipline my mind. And a flag flying is trying to do the same thing. It's trying to attract attention and affection that is be- properly belongs somewhere else, and it's trying to attract it to that. And this is what I mean by the earliest Christians. They saw this as, a, as something to be wary of, not something to celebrate. Um, and that, and that doesn't mean all groups of people together are evil and must be destroyed. It's not saying that. It's just saying that thing called a country is trying to, is trying to take the best of you and use it for its own ends. Yeah. And is that what it's owed? Yeah. yeah. Well, we do want to open it up. So you can, ha- you can ask a question on anything and everything or on specifically some of the things that Stephen has been sharing. Uh, we don't have an editorial direction for... The questions and uh, answers or considerations of tonight uh, could be uh, from the passage in Mark. If you didn't have a chance to get your passage in Mark addressed in this morning's message and you didn't have a chance to speak to Stephen afterwards, you could uh, shout out that passage if you feel like you still uh, need resolve there. Does anyone have any questions on theological matters? Cora. Just a little bit kind of about, in a little bit in lines of what you've been talking about, yeah. something that I've struggled with reading the New Testament, especially like the Gospels where Jesus came and whatever else. You're like, Jesus, dude, this would have been mind-blowing. Like you're saying, mm-hmm. that analogy you said this morning of like the earthquake, yeah. right. right? You're like, you expected everyone to get this? Did he expect everyone to get this right away? Like, <laughs> to me, it seems like, is yeah. that, was that unfair to expect all these years of tradition and Moses and whatever else? You're going to tear that down? Like, and you, are you expecting these people to grasp that? Do you understand kind yeah, of what I I'm asking? Understand. I'm like, that is huge, Jesus. Even the fact that anybody was like, dude, you're right. You are the son of God. Is yeah. like, they had to fight through a lot of tradition and everything, right, to kind of grasp this. Maybe that's my limited understanding. Wow. Well, it you, wasn't that. You, so, Cora, you are right. And you can see why in the book of Acts, when the Christians are starting to get traction, the complaint against them is they are turning the world upside down. That was the complaint brought to them. Like, these people are turning the world upside down. Um, and, yeah, so you are seeing... In the New Testament, the de- 
a description of what it might feel like for a meteorite to hit the Earth. Um, and, and it's only 2,000 years later that we've... Well, it's, to be honest, it's partly back to what we're talking about. We've so tamed Christianity to make it just part of the story of human civilization. We folded in the story of Christianity. This is Kierkegaard's point. He's like, that lightning bolt that hit the earth that was Jesus that upset everything has now been tamed to the point where the name of Jesus is just, we all roll our eyes because we've all heard, we th- people go, oh yeah, I'm a Christian because I'm Canadian or whatever, you know. I'm Nigerian, so I must be Christian in some way. Like, we've so identified being a certain type of culture with being Christian that we've forgotten that this was a meteorite that hit the earth. And it still has a huge upset. It's, it, it puts a claim on you that, that asks you to make some really big decisions about, like, Jesus, you know, there's all that language of, like, if you don't hate your mother and father, you can't be my disciple. There's that really stark language that gets used. And, and it, it's so kind of odd to me that, for instance, Christianity is so connected to traditional family values, for example. Like, I, you know, traditional family values, I guess we could all think what that might mean. But, like, in the New Testament itself, I think there's only one time when Jesus is, that he basically is never unambiguously for birth family. Like, the only time I can think of is when he said, honor your father and mother. Every other time he mentions, like, your birth family, it's ambiguous. It's people who, it's his mother and his brothers who are saying, you've got a demon. Um, it's Jesus saying, let, the, let people, let sons bury their, let fathers, let the dead bury their own dead. You need to come follow me. And what there is in the, however, is Jesus saying to John, the beloved disciple, this is my mother, take care of her. You see Jesus create blended families. <laughs> um, so I'm not saying Jesus is anti-family. But, like, the idea that our birth family is our tribal unit and we're, it's us against the world is a, dis, is a supremely unchristian idea. A, the Christian idea was all about adoption and blended families and bringing Jews and Gentiles together under one roof and eating under one, at one table and stuff. And, um, and you just realize, like, how, how offensive that is, even today. And it was offensive then, right? And that he's saying, I want you to cross boundaries that are going to rupture the normal way of doing things if you want to be my people. Um, and he, say, he does say those things, and you're right, that demand is quite high. Um, but then on the flip side is you notice that people, well, you notice in the New Testament that there's a lot of people who, more people reject Jesus than accept him. Even in the New Testament. I pointed this out. I've said this before. Like, the New Testament is a biased set of documents. I mean, it's it's intended to convince you that Jesus is the Son of God. Like, it, it's not an objective accounting. It's like, it will tell you, we selected these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And even the New Testament can't hide the fact that most people who met him rejected him. Okay? <laughs> That's like a feature of, that is a feature of being a Jesus person, is that most people are going to reject him. Yeah. Which is, again, when we say we want to take the nation back for Christ, what do we, when has that ever happened? Like, right. Christianity doesn't seem to be a majority worldview. It's always been a minority worldview. Yeah. It's the narrow way. Um, right? And so, yeah, the, the, the fact that more people rejected Jesus or that he made a teachings that people found too hard to follow where he said, are you offended by me or are you with me? Um, that, that seems to be a core feature of Jesus' uh, existence, for sure. Um, 
And then I would say that the people who did choose, they, I think they really loved it. Just because he was good, right? Like, it's, it was the goodness. So Jesus didn't, people didn't want to kill Jesus because he was a dickhead. Pardon me for being, he wasn't being a jerk. So we have Christians today that are just the worst people you've ever met. They're like horrible people. And they, 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 they're known for hate, and they're known for who they hate, and who they are against, and who they're agitating to try and kill. And Do you know what I mean? And then they go, oh, Jesus said people will hate you because of me, so we must be doing the right, the good job. No, Jesus, people hated Jesus because he cared for, you know, foreigners and menstruating women and children. And he was, they, they hated him because he was eating with race traitors. They were, he was e- eating with non-patriots. Yeah. That's why they hated him. Right. So to turn around and go, you know, <laughs> oh, people hate me. It must be because I'm being a Jesus person. Like, no, they hate you because you're being a dickhead. And, and, and Jesus is like, don't do that. I'm telling you, we are doing something new. And, and we love each other. We're for, you know, that's how you know you're my disciple. You'll, they'll know you're my disciple because you love one another, and people will persecute you because of me. Those two things come together. And so it's our love for each other, which, which itself is the offense. Okay? Anyway. Sorry, excuse my language. No, it's all right. I believe that, I believe that is a technical theological <laughs> term. We don't have time to get into it, but... Paul swore. <laughs> it's true. Go look up, what, go look up what scubalon means. Yeah, the rubbish. I consider it rubbish yeah. for the sake of... Go look Christ. what scubalon means. Yeah. That's what happens when 40 people decide how to uh, translate a text. Right. <laughs> all 40 are like, well, that's not exactly what it means, but I don't want to be the one to say... Yeah. <laughs> The other thing. Well, there's no, like I said, there's no interruption. So if you just raise your hand, I'll come to you. And hey, Lindsay. For the recording. Uh, Get on my radio voice. Okay. Thanks for tuning in. Um, Mark chapter 13, verse 20. (laughs) Uh, And if the Lord did not cut short the days... No human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect oh, whom he yeah. chose, he shortened the days. And then it says in following verses, um, and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. So like false prophets. Um, I'm just like wondering what he's going for. Is this Mark 13, 20? Okay, so this is all part of, now this is where we're going to get into a realm where there are Christians probably in this room that will, dis, I mean, we're going to talk about predestination and foreordained, right? This is one of those brittle moments. There are some Christians for whom this is like the central plank in their whole worldview, and if that is you, I'm really sorry, but it's not the central plank in my old worldview. Uh, and, uh, you know, I love you, and I hope that we can have a relationship together. But there is more than one way, even in the Bible, to think about this stuff, right? And that there are some aspects of, in the New Testament, which seems to strongly imply, like, foreknowledge. Jesus is like, I haven't lost anybody that was given to me, or I have, I have elected you to be my followers. And, uh, um, you know, there's some really strong language of, like, since the beginning of time, you have been chosen and you're my people, right? And so then you get, 
in the history of Christianity, you get what we sort of call the Calvinist wing, which is which would say really strongly, like to the point where some people would say, you know, God created human beings, and some of them He knew that they would reject Him. They, they never had a choice. There's no free will. He's He's a, created some humans to be saved and some humans to be damned. And then you get on the other side, right? Christians who look inside the scriptures and they see that, well, the language of election and foreordained seems to be a little bit more like that God chose every. It is God's will. This is also from the scriptures. It is God's will that no one sh- should perish, that everyone should be saved. Um, so it's kind of like, I've chosen you. Now, do you want to accept that? So as soon as you accept it, right, I chose you from the beginning of the world. You know, I've chosen everybody from the beginning of the world, and the ones who choose me back are now in a relationship with me, and it's as if they'd been chosen since the beginning of time. So there's that kind of way of saying, look, this idea of foreordained and election is not the same as saying there's no such thing as free will. It's saying, it is my will. Well, I've used this, I've heard this described in terms of, um, like in a classroom, you know, a teacher is in charge of the room, but not in control of the room. Uh, and then you hear this described sometimes, God is in charge, but not in control. The idea that not micromanaging every little thing. So like the teacher says, sets the space and says, in this space, you know, we are here to learn and to play, and the final, I'm the final authority. But the teacher doesn't, she doesn't lift up every child's hand and with the pen and draw the letters, and she doesn't micromanage every action. So you get this idea that the picture of Jesus gives us of God in the New Testament is one of basically somebody you can say no to. Jesus is somebody that you can say no to. Um, and you get an idea that, that Jesus says, I, you know, I'm God, <laughs> I am, and this is what God looks like. And if that is true, look, I can't prove it. If Richard Dawkins was here, you know, if Christopher Hitchens was here, I couldn't convince him otherwise. But if Jesus really is anything like if he really is the image of God, then one of the main things he tells us is that God is not a dominating bully. That God isn't micromanaged controlling you. He says, here I am, come to me, all who are weary. And you can say no. Uh, we talked about the unforgivable sin. You can say no to the Holy Spirit. You can be in the presence of Lazarus being raised from the dead and immediately go away and plot to kill Jesus. It can happen. You know, the presence of Jesus in all his glory does not force you to believe in him. So we get this idea that there seems to be, you know, this ability within Jesus or within the New Testament of like, Jesus wants everyone to come to him, but some will choose not to. And so then you start to get that passage you've read out um, is a teaching about false prophets and false teachers. And this is where you start to have a window into how the document, the mark, is, an early, is a document of the early church. And it was primarily and first of all written for a church. It was originally written because somebody somewhere, and I don't remember exactly the region, that we're not sure exactly where, but there was a city in the Middle East which had a church which had been going for 20 or 30 years, and Peter was connected to that church or something, and then he died or was about to die, and somebody said, oh boy, we better write this stuff down. We need our people to remember this stuff about Jesus. And it was originally for a group of people. 
And so when we, as um, New Testament scholars, we look at some of those passages and we're like, how interesting that they decided of all the things Jesus said, they really wanted to preserve the warning about false teachers and stuff. And so then we have an insight into what the early church, some of the issues they were facing, for example. And you start to notice inside the New Testament, there's other places talks about false teachers. Or Paul or Hebrews will give instructions on how to deal with wandering ministers who come to you. I'm a wandering minister, <laughs> right? Um, and, and the New Testament world was one in which people traveled around and they were starting to wrestle with how do we deal with this. And so in Mark, we have an example of basically Peter saying, hey, remember Jesus talked about this? You know, it's kind of like we get a little window into, oh yeah, that, this was a live issue. And they, they wanted to make sure Jesus was comment, uh, that we knew that Jesus had actually commented on the fact that there will be, and there always will be, um, what, what he calls false prophets or wolves who want to lead your sheep astray and that kind of thing. The sheep will hear my voice. There'll be wolves who are trying to, to break in. Where, um, and there's always lots of warnings about this. And that, this is just one of those warnings. Of it's A lot of the New Testament, a lot of the Gospels is actually about community formation. It's about trying to forge right relations in this new movement called the church. So there's a lot of attention in the New Testament paid towards things like conflict resolution, how to deal with disagreement, and the, the issues in Matthew of how to deal with the brother who sins against you and stuff. And then, and then also there's quite a lot of energy spent in the New Testament of how to deal with rival teaching groups and what do you do when one person claims one thing and another person claims another and how do you deal with that? And, um, a lot of it is about saying, well, we knew Jesus. This is what it felt like to be around him. So if somebody doesn't sound and look like that, then they're a false prophet, right? Um, which is relevant to us today because it is surprisingly easy, not just academic theology, it is surprisingly easy just to go to your regular charismatic evangelical church and not actually talk about Jesus very much. Um, I, the amount of times I've flipped through Destiny House publishing books, which will talk a lot about all sorts of things, Jesus doesn't get a look in very much sometimes, some of these books. Like, pay attention to this, folks. Like, always come back to Jesus. <laughs> like, we're not trying to promote and preserve a set of teachings or a worldview called Christianity or whatever. We're trying to be excellent about Jesus and always come back to Jesus. And like, if somebody comes and starts talking to you and teaching you about something and they, they're, Paul talks about it, they're puffed up on knowledge or they're full of visions and dreams, if they can't, if you can't constantly bring it back to, well, this is what it sounds and looks like to be around Jesus, well, they're a false prophet, you know, and Jesus isn't a mystery. God isn't a mystery. God looks like Jesus. If we're Christians, God looks like Jesus. It's not, he says mysterious things, but he's not a mystery. Yeah. Um, you, you know, if, so, if, if, if somebody says, Jesus told me that I'm a Christian and I think we should drop a bomb on our enemies and everybody cheers, you're like, well, um, Jesus wouldn't have said that. Right. So it's not Christian. You know, peace on you, I love you, brother, but that's not Christian. You know what I mean? And that happens a lot, a lot, a lot. So there's a lot of this stuff about false prophets and things you can kind of get worried of as if he's talking about some 
weird magician or something. So no, he's just talking about you're going to have a lot of teachers who want to come and teach you, but if they don't look and sound like me, then they, it's not Christian, right? To piggyback, uh, the heading in my Bible, Lindsay, in that passage is the abomination of desolation. Oh, yeah. And that leads me to another th- thing. I'll try to make the wind-up shorter. <laughs> but I've heard, I've heard politics described as how we all get to where we want to go. So mm-hmm. whatever we do now as a collective has a certain endpoint in mind. And politicians will forecast and business leaders will forecast and people will vote with a future in mind. Uh, and obviously, I think the West is fairly... It's driven by a desire for utopia, you know. Nations, uh, they claim their sovereignty because they want to create a type of paradise for their citizenry. And so therefore, this brings a certain, to use a theological term for you, a certain eschatological element to passages, I would imagine, like this and the book of Revelation. Eschatology is just a way of talking about the fate of the world. Right, and talking about the end and, and the direction that we're all headed toward. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, when you talk about the politics of Jesus and the political dimensions of the kingdom, you're, there's also an element that, you know, in, a, in this passage, some people would say, this is, you know, my grandfather's generation would talk about this as uh, one particular antichrist who is just around the corner, who's probably born right now somewhere in Europe, right? So there's that vision. Yeah. But then there's also, you know, other other dimensions that could be understood. There's, you know, people when I went to... Uh, Bible college to BSSM that said, no, 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 this passage is about AD 70, and it's specifically about something happened when the temple was destroyed. Yeah, and a Roman governor put his statue, the abomination that causes desolation was a, a Roman governor put his statue up in the temple. Right. Yeah. But I, I guess my question to you is, in these, in discovering this political framework and, and seeing the politics of the time and place in which the Gospels were written, yeah. how has that informed your reading of the book of Revelation or of the Gospel of Mark because a lot of the apocalyptic yeah. symbols, we yeah. don't read them as apocalyptic symbols anymore. We don't read them in, this, in the right, uh, uh, we don't read the literature in the right genre and we don't recognize, I heard one preacher say, it's like if you see a political cartoon of a donkey and an elephant fighting, you know that represents the Republicans and the Democrats. But 2,000 years from now, nobody know, is going to know that the elephant represented the Republicans and hmm. the the donkey represented the Democrats. So how, how has your... I think I said that on a podcast. Maybe. <laughs> I just quote you all the time, right? Yeah. I'm, st- I'm at the point now where I'm stealing from you yeah. and not even giving you credit yeah. for it. But how, how, is, how is your political reading, how is that informed? Because a lot of the most challenging texts, pastorally yeah. speaking, yeah. are the ones where people don't, don't know how to unpack, let's say, the book of Revelation or the apocalyptic prophecies uh, yeah. of Jesus. And uh, yeah, that's... I guess the way I'd ask. Well, this is one of those ones where I would say, if you have ten minutes of, if you just do ten minutes of of proper church history just on the internet, you'll realize nobody has ever understood what this meant. Um, not like nobody has. So if ever you find somebody who really confidently says, "I know what this means," then you're like, "No, you don't," because nobody has. And and in fact, the book of Revelation has always been a, a controversial book to include in the New Testament. Um, and, and essentially, it got included because people said, well, this is John, probably John, son of Zebedee, probably disciple of Jesus. And, and so he, was, he knew Jesus, so it's in. You know? But it wasn't that they went, 
Oh, it's in because we understand every word of it. Um, and it was a controversial book. I mean, so the can when we say the canon, we mean like the the books of the Bible that are in, that are in, <laughs> that are legitimate. Revelation is canon. The church has decided this is useful for teaching and correcting. It came from somebody who knew Jesus. So I'm like, good, we have it. But you also have to understand that part of it being canon is that it has always been mysterious. So if ever you find somebody who claims it isn't, then then um, then they're departing quite heavily from just the the, the original text. Um, but yeah, I do think that it's. I do think that a lot of that revelation. I, I, listen, guys, I don't. I'm aware that some people, again, again, this is one of those issues that some people's whole Christianity is based around this stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm wary. I don't, I don't know this room. I don't know if that's true here. So, but, um, but I do think it's interesting that a lot of modern day Christians read the Book of Revelation as if it was primarily written about them and the future. And they forget that actually it was primarily written for Christians living under Roman occupation <laughs> in the first hundred years of the church's existence, right? And it's primary. So, and then if you know that, and you realize things like the beast with ten heads, the dragon with ten heads. Well, that was Rome. Rome. There's there's ten forts on hills around Rome, and it was known as you know. One, there's little clues, and and it just takes a little bit of research it, to realize oh. Um, a lot of this stuff is actually about us talking about the new movement of Christ's relationship to the evil ruling empire, to Babylon. And, um, and the book of Revelation is deliberately using language like Babylon, and it ends with a new creation. It's, it's bringing you back to the book of Genesis. The book of Revelation is like this bookend to the whole Bible because Revel- Genesis starts with the creation account of the world, and then very quickly it gets into the Tower of Babel, which is the account of, um, you know, the story that they built the, t- the, the tower, and then God gives them di- different languages to disperse them. But that story is, isn't really a, this Tower of Babel story in Genesis isn't really a story about the beginning of languages. It's a story about the beginning of Babylon. Now, Babylon was the site of where this tower was. And it's meant to be like the origin story of the beginning of Babylon then stands in for the rest of the Bible as whenever human empires and organizations set themselves up pridefully against God. And Babylon was the evil ruling empire that subjected the Jews to slavery for a long time. And then, so sometimes Babylon is literally the city of Babylon. And then in the Bible, sometimes it just becomes a stand-in for any ruling empire that has held captive God's people. And then it gets into Revelation and there's Babylon again. And you're like, oh, right, this is the early Christians just putting themselves into this whole story that we found in the whole Bible of God leading his people out of exile, out of Babylon and the ultimate fate of the evil ruling empires. So it's a lot of politics in the book of Revelation. And it's the original context is those, that aspect. So I don't uh, use the book of Revelation as the, as the core foundation around which my whole faith ro- rotates. Um, I use the book of Revelation. Jesus, there's some amazing hymns of worship in the book of Revelation. You know, that the Handel's Messiah takes all its language from the book of Revelation, for example. So I'm, I mean, I'm not at all dismissing it, but I do think that, like, you need to take more careful care with that book than probably any other because it is a mysterious book which was written in some kind of code maybe to stop 
the original audience from being persecuted if their books ever got. So it, the original audience knew that, oh, when we, when we talk about the beast, we're talking about the Emperor Nero. Um, but we don't want to say Emperor Nero because if somebody gets our books, then they'll persecute us, right? So there's that, there's that element might be happening there. Also, by the way, the Antichrist um, doesn't show up in the book of Revelation. You do know that, right? You know, our popular Christian, you've got to think how much of our, what we think is Christianity is actually just sort of popular sentimentalism. The word Antichrist does not appear in the book of Revelation. The Antichrist appears in, in the, the letters of John, and it's to people who deny that Jesus came in the flesh. That's the Antichrist. Somebody who denies that Jesus came in the flesh um, and, and the works that, impl- that come from that. So it's, he's, not, he's not some... The Antichrist isn't some Hollywood horror movie villain. And it's not some political figure. You know, and we get ourselves all caught up in a knot. And, and people who claim to love the Bible so much don't seem to actually just use the Bible to do their own work. The Antichrist doesn't show up in the book of Revelation. Um, and, and he shows up in the John's pastoral letters as a way of forming Christians, it's actually more related to your question about false prophets. Of like, be careful, guys. We, 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 need to, we need to preserve what's true in our community because there's people around us who want to teach something that Jesus wasn't like. But I was with Jesus. I touched him. I know he's in the flesh. So be careful that you don't have antichrists. So... Okay, so this is Matthew, or sorry, Luke 22. So this is the Last Supper kind of deal, just kind of setting it yep. up here. So this is right after Peter, you know, declares that he, Lord, I am ready yep. to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus says, I, I yep. tell you, Peter, the rooster will crow this day. Okay, so that's this part, right? So then Jesus says, and he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack, or sandals, did you lack anything? Yep. They said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one... Oh, my Wi-Fi password came up here. Oh. Uh, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For yep. I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And then, down on 38, they say, to, look, Lord, here are two oh, wait, swords. You didn't finish reading that... You didn't. Oh, you, okay. you left out the most important verse. <laughs> Finish reading that passage, and then we keep going. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me, and that he was numbered with their transgressors. Okay. For what was written about me has its fulfillment. Yeah. And they say, "Look, Lord, here are two swords." He says to them, "It is enough." Yeah. Okay. Now you can keep going. And he came out and went. And uh, was his, as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, yep. his disciples followed him. So my question is, why did he say, take a sword? Why did, yeah. like, I understand now later when in the Mount of yeah. Olives, that's yeah. when Peter cut off the guy's ear. Yeah. But what was the point of that? Yeah. Okay. Really good question. Um, so... Really good question, and what happens is people use... I don't know where you're coming from, so I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to argue against an argument that you're not making. Um, so I, 
I'm trying to work out a way to have an, a non-lethal vi- I think Jesus, I think it's off the table to kill your enemies, okay? So, um, so I'm trying to work out how that means. And then when you try and do that in a room, pe- people often say, oh, but Jesus said buy two swords, right? And they often use that as their knockdown argument against any view that might be a non-violent approach to the world. So, what I would then say to you, if that's what you're saying, what I would say is, okay, you have to take the whole life of Jesus, who, who submitted to death, who refused to, to use any of his followers to fight his enemies, who explicitly point blank refused to kill his enemies, who told all of his followers not to do the same, to not kill. You have to take into account like all the teachings of Jesus, all the life of Jesus, all the life of his first followers. And against that, you can put this one verse, which Jesus said, buy two swords. By the way, he said, buy two swords, and then he says, don't use them, right? Because right in the, the next story is they use the swords, and he says, that's not what we're here for. Um, you also have to take into account that that story, he says, I want you to buy two swords, and then they say, we've got the swords, and he says, that's enough. He shuts it down. And it's part of the cycle of stories in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke, of the disciples not understanding Jesus. The point of that story is that he shuts them down because they don't understand him, okay? So it's like, yeah, he did say that, but you have to include... So that's one mysterious story which is there as an example of disciples not understanding Jesus against everything else about Jesus. <laughs> so um, who, who basically is saying, don't kill your enemies, <laughs> So, um, one thing I've read about this is that the appearance, uh, holding a sword, you're meant to look like, it's, it's almost just like it's defense just because you look like you're ready to fight. So, as he's, I'm sending you out, I want you to be, get ready for a fight, but then I don't actually want you to use it. That is one, that's a literal reading of the text. Jesus literally says, buy some swords, and then he literally says, don't use them. Um, then some people think maybe it's more of a metaphorical allegory, or it's just a metaphor for get ready, like gird up your loins, you know, don't throw in the towel, lace up your boots, right? There's this kind of idea of like, get ready, get, get yourself ready, and he's using the metaphors for what it takes to get ready. Strap on your swords, and then the disciples literally take him literally, say, here they are, and he says, no, 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 you've misunderstood, like, that's enough, you've gone too far. So there's that, those are the two ways I've heard that described. That either he says, buy the sword, and then you look like you have a sword, and that might act as some sort of deterrent. Or I think more likely, because it fits with the pattern you see in the rest of the New Testament, Jesus is saying, get ready for a fight. And then they took him too literally, and he said, no, no, you misunderstood what I mean. We fight, but not as the world fight. Can I humbly submit an idea into the... Yeah. And then... The reason why I say humbly is because I have a theologian here who can tell me that my reading of the Scripture might not be up to snuff. Uh, the thing that always stands out to me in that passage is that it says that this fulfills the prophecy that he'll be numbered among the transgressors. And why that's important to me is I think often of the person who came to arrest Jesus. So Jesus didn't just die at the hands of sinful individuals. He was crucified by powers and principalities. So another criticism is of, of the nonviolent reading of Jesus is, if Jesus is so nonviolent, then why does he heal the centurion and not say to the centurion, hey, quit killing people, mm-hmm. right? Because you'd think that if he cares about humans not killing humans, he wouldn't just heal a guy whose job it is to kill 
the enemies of Rome and not say something confrontive to him. And to me, what I've, what I've discovered and found value in is by, by bringing a sword into the garden, the person who has been charged with arresting Jesus is the final step in a big system. So he's been told that whoever Judas kisses is the guy, is the traitor, is the rebel, is the seditionist. He needs to be arrested. And by having a sword, the man who arrests Jesus has an eased conscience because he's not the reason why Jesus will be killed. The whole power and principality of the region, it's, it is his individual choice, but it's not his individual choice alone. And we know from early church history, there were certain Christians that used the murder of Jesus' justification for racism against the Jews. They were the ones who killed the Messiah. Therefore, we can now be, you know, in a very tragic way, we can now be racist against them for what they've done. And to me, Jesus saying, hey, you know, here's two swords. He's not saying, we're going to take on Rome with two swords. He's saying, in my mind, I want to be numbered with the transgressors. Right. I want the whole, I want, right. I'm, I am being put on trial. Now is the judgment of this world. So all the powers and principalities that put me to death, they are being judged by what I'm about to do. But I don't want the individual dude who comes into the garden and sees me to then be held responsible and to feel guilty for uh, arresting me and, and putting me to death. That's how I would. So he's showing solidarity with the violent people by himself. That would be that would Lining be how himself. I would understand it. He's yeah. he's 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 um, by being numbered with the transgressors. Everyone who everyone who cru- who shouts crucify him is thinking they're doing God a favor. Yeah, and therefore Jesus is is literally being put between two thieves, and so it is apropos for um, criminals and enemies of the state to be carrying weapons. And and I read it as him going right. I am identifying with the worst people who have been excluded from this empire because I am being judged by this principality and I accept that. Right. The accoutrements of that. So he lets himself be identified as... He did let himself be identified as a bandit. Um, The thieves weren't just thieves, they were highway robbers. Um, And highway robbers were... You you weren't crucified just because you were a robber, you were crucified because you were a traitor to Rome. And the highwaymen were... um, Rome was the great, their technology was the roads, and that was how they exerted their dominance over everything, was the roads. That's how you brought the money into Rome and how you sent the soldiers out. So highway robbers were actually treasonous against the peace of Rome. So when Jesus was crucified on either side by, and there were highwaymen on either side of him, um, it's a clue as to what Rome thought of Jesus when they saw him. They're like, oh, you're just another one of these highway bandits. Just, you're a traitor to Rome. Um, which is interesting. So he's a bit like what Connor just said. It's like Jesus was kind of allowing himself to be identified with. He wasn't himself a highway robber, but if you looked at him, you would think he was one of those guys. It's kind of like, yeah, he's, he's allowed himself to be numbered with the transgressors as well. So, yeah, it's, I mean, obviously that's a really good question. And obviously it's a, it's a mysterious passage. You know, yeah, for sure. Kendall, you had a question. Mark 9, um, the temptations to sin. Whoever causes the little ones to believe, to believe, uh, to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck. And then it goes on 
if you have an eye, poke it out. If it causes yep. you to sin. And then at near the uh, at verse forty-eight um, or verse forty-seven, if at the end of that kingdom of God with one eye, you're thrown into hell, yep. where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, in some versions, it's everyone will be salted with fire. Mm. Okay, in some some versions, it's salted with salt, but. Um, it's kind of a description of hell. Yeah. So uh, I guess my question is, one, uh, a difficult passage, is, is this literal? <laughs> Should you be cutting your limbs off if they sin? Yeah, right. And two, uh, it's a description of, it says, for everyone will be salted with fire. What, is, what does that mean? Right. Well, I mean... Saying that it is literally true that it's better for you to lose a hand than to be thrown into the fires of hell, that is true. doesn't mean it's going to happen. doesn't mean you're going to hell unless you cut off your hand, by the way. <laughs> um, it can be literally true. Oh, yeah. You know, you, know that, you know that place of eternal torture? It'd be better for you to lose a body part than to go to there, wouldn't it? Like, yeah, that's true. That's not the same as Jesus sending you there. I would just point that out. Um, but the, the hell language is something we really need to pay attention to here. And again, you know, I'm being careful here because this is a, a sore, this is a hot button issue. But I mean, if you really want to be literal, if you're saying literally, do we take this literally true? Jesus doesn't use the word hell. He says Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnon. And Gehenna, Jesus, when he talks about it, it it's part of, Gehenna was, Literally, the rubbish tip, the, the garbage, the valley where you'd throw your garbage and light it on fire. And before it was that, it was the site of child sacrifice. It was one of the sites of Molech where the people would, would sacrifice their children. Okay? And then when the Israelites reformed themselves, the Israelites would sacrifice their children, by the way. And then when they reformed themselves, that valley became a place where you would throw out your, your, your garbage and light it on fire. So when Jesus is talking about be careful that you don't get thrown into the, the, this valley of burning garbage, which is associated with idolatry and child sacrifice, like it's rich with all sorts of meanings, and he's not talking about the lake of fire with a demon who's poking you with a pitchfork. That's a kind of a, we've added that on top of that. There's, I often say to people, like, close, I say the word hell, Close your eyes. Imagine hell. Well, do it now. You know, imagine hell. Okay? You've all, you have just imagined a Roman Catholic medieval wall painting on a church. Right? Our popular image of hell hasn't, has come to us from... We've, we've taken a lot of different images throughout the Bible and put it all into one place and added onto that a whole mix of medieval imagery. And we've created this lake of fire. So there is a lake of fire, but that's not what Jesus, that's in the book of Revelation. That's not what I'm talking about here. For example, Jesus is specifically talking about being of use. So salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, it's thrown out. It's no good for anything, but he trampled. Fig trees are good, but if they don't produce good fruit, then there's, you have to burn them up. And don't be a, somebody who trains little children to go astray. Otherwise, you also will be trampled and underfoot or thrown into the fire. Like, these are all images of 
being of use for the kingdom or not, or being useless. Um, so Jesus is filled with those kind of images. But, but to take just the valley of Gehenna as if that's Jesus talking about hell is to ignore that in other places he talks about being sent out where there's out of the banquet, where there's coldness. Well, how do you have a valley of eternal flame that is also cold? Like, are you literally going to take both those descriptions? Um, um, th- being thrown out and, and being of no good anymore. Um, being ejected from a party. Being sent out where there's gnashing of teeth. Like, he uses this, this, this imagery absolutely all the time. But to just take the couple of places where he talks about the Valley of Gehenna and say, oh, that must be he's talking about the Roman Catholic medieval wall painting, is to, to put too much into it, it's to create a, a system, a world system of heaven and hell and that Jesus wasn't talking about. He's talking about the, the system of life or a system of death that we are a part of now. Um, you know, we talked about eschatology earlier. So eschatology is... It's just the theological way of talking about the end of the world. Well, there's a really strong element of Christianity, and if you guys are influenced by Bethel, then you're influenced by this, called realized eschatology, which means it's a lot of what, a lot of our imagery of like the end of the world has already happened. It's, it's been realized. It's already happened. We're actually living in it now. And there's a really strong strand of Christian teaching, which is like, paying attention, Jesus said the kingdom isn't just something in the future, it is here now. The kingdom is present. It is with us now, right? So we, there's a, and this is the strand of Christianity I'm in as well. It's like, we haven't seen it fully realized, we're not seeing its fullness, but the kingdom is present now. It's not something we're just waiting for in the future. We get to participate in it now. And if the kingdom is now, if the kingdom of heaven is now, then so is the kingdom of hell. And that the kingdom of heaven is how you describe what it means to say yes to God. Um, the New Testament uses heaven language not to describe a place you go to when you die. It's a way to describe the state of existence when God's reign is unopposed. Right? Heaven is, and we say, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Like, your will be done. People say yes to you on earth as they do in heaven. Like, we want earth and heaven to be the same thing. When heaven invades earth, right? We want people to say yes to God. We want God's reign to be unopposed. And so the New Testament says that's a, that's a light or that's life. And the opposite of that is death or darkness. And like those two things can exist or hell or, you know, eternally, I don't even know what the word would be, like use, uselessness, discarding, being just thrown underfoot. That seems to be like a present existence. You can either live as a person in the light who's living a heavenly yes to God existence, or you can live as a person of death who's living a, an existence which is destroying and twisting and wasting human lives, right? And that, so in the New Testament, there's a lot of that language of like, we kind of think of it as eternal punishment for sins you've committed in your life. Us modern Christians have got that idea, but in the New Testament, that we got to pay attention to that. He seems to be talking a lot more about, like, in the present now. You can live in hell now, or you can live in heaven now. Uh, you can say no to God or say yes to God. So then he's, I don't understand the salted with fire. It's a phrase I don't really understand. Um, but it, the salt has to do with 
well, two things, doesn't it? Hospitality. So salt means in the, new t- in the first century world, salt had to do with, it had meanings of hospitality. And we even say it now, right? If you, sometimes you can say you, sh- you share bread and salt with someone, I think, in Russia, the Russian culture. Um, so salt had to do with being hospitable and welcoming strangers. Salt of the earth. Um, and it also has to do with being useful. A small amount bringing life to a lot of things. So whenever you see salt imagery, there's that kind of idea going on that Jesus is talking about. And I don't know exactly what you're salted with fire might mean, but it's like he's saying you're being made useful. You're being prepared to be a light shining in the darkness. You're being prepared to be a city on a hill. You're being prepared to be an agent for the kingdom, right? Keep acting like it. Don't act like somebody who's not an agent of the kingdom. Yeah. So, the other thing I'd say about hell language, by the way, or that eternal judgment kind of language, Jesus never used it to to people who weren't already his followers. Within the New Testament, he always uses that language. I'm not saying he never used it, but I'm saying he only ever used that language to people who already claim to be his followers. And then if you go into the New Testament and you want to find like, you know, I've heard people go, oh, we need to go back. We need to go back to the, old, to, the, to the biblical days and preach hellfire. Like, oh, yeah? Go into the book of Acts, the earliest record we have of the earliest preachers, missions to the Gentiles. Guess what never shows up in the book of Acts? They never preach hell. Um, the Apostle Paul never talks about it. Like, the earliest Christian writers we have, like, Whatever you want to say about this, it was not their core evangelistic method. <laughs> it just wasn't. It just wasn't. And the only times it comes up is when, he, when they're doing instruction to the people who already be claiming to be followers of Jesus. And then there's an overtone of, be useful, don't be useless. You know, don't be discarded. Be, be of good use in the world. So, I just want to hold that. And you know, the hell thing, we got to... We've got to be careful with that because we've got to use it the way Jesus and the early Christians actually used it. And I'm not saying they didn't use that language of eternal discarding, but pay attention to how they used it and when they use it and to whom they used it against. Uh, and also people like Jesus came and he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, right? He, did not, he was not saying turn or burn because it's the kindness of God that moves men to repentance, right? Like... And how did Jesus get people to repent? He's like, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Hey, sinner, I want to come have dinner at your house. Right? Hey, sinner, I want you to wash my feet with oil. Right? Like, that was how he got. It was kindness that brought to repentance. It was not turn or burn. It was turn, for sure. But he was not using the fear of hell to bring people into the kingdom of God. That was not what he was doing. So I was listening to your segment on the Nomad podcast, and I really enjoyed it. And I was thinking a little bit about some comments you made regarding uh, the role of Christians in politics or in human history. And you were kind of making this comment. I don't want to paraphrase you incorrectly, but you're kind of saying that it was your role as a Christian to kind of do your best 
focus on what was important in your own area, in your own life, in your own community, and that that was the main thing for you. And okay, maybe okay. I'm paraphrasing, but I just kind of go into um, talking about how living a Christian life is radical enough. Like, uh, let's say a a church full of different cultures and races is radical. Is that that's a radical act, or yeah. you know, loving people the way that you should is a radical act, and that just simply by living, yeah, you are living a radical act. And it reminded me a little bit of uh, in the presence of the kingdom, the Jacques Ellul book uh, we were sort of referencing earlier. He he talks about. Um, he says, in a, in a civilization which has lost all sense of the meaning of life, the most useful thing a Christian can do is to live. And I think it reminded me of what you were saying. I, correct me if I'm wrong. But it reminded me of what you were saying in the podcast about how we end up being radical in the way that we live if we're just following Christ and, and being obedient in the things we're supposed to be doing, yeah. which is loving one another and... Yeah, you know, being together in un in unity. Uh, my question, I suppose, if you'd like to make any comments about any of that, please feel free. But my question is, um, you know, what responsibility do you feel humans have in affecting the course of history? Because when I heard you say that, I heard it as um, more of a passive stance than an assertive. Dance, right. politically perhaps, maybe that's where my mind was. And, um, you know, and then you talked about Bonhoeffer and that very gross misstep that he took in that he tried to assassinate Hitler and then that went really wrong. And so you have people who are trying to affect the course of history in very assertive or perhaps yeah. aggressive ways. Um, and then you have others who are trying to affect the course of history. And my mind goes very, very differently, of course, to like Martin Luther King, who says, well, we can't wait anymore. People are telling us to wait. Well, we're, we can't wait. The time is now. And, you know, uh, in just what, I don't know what the quote is, but like justice denied, basically saying like, we need to see justice happen now. So we're going to take action and be a little more assertive. So I don't know if that makes any sense. My brain, I'm trying to figure out the best way to, gather all my thoughts, yeah. but um, from the perspective of, you know, what's going on in the world and especially in America and, you know, surely Canadians and British individuals also kind of fighting their own battles to see certain things happening and they believe, hey, if you have a platform and if you have influence, you should be doing something with that. A lot of people were upset because Bethel wasn't doing enough talking about race or talking about different things that were going on. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people were personally offended by that. The people felt excluded or ostracized. So you have a lot of people who are in oppression in a way that um, is perhaps not something you necessarily, well, I guess we do see it biblically as well, people who are in oppression in different ways, like whether it's a systemic racism or you know social oppression, these sort of things. Um, you have all these different people who are crying out, who are yeah. feeling oppressed. And what role do the Christians have in helping see these people find freedom in the platforms that they have or the, the influence that they have and what role do Christians play in affecting 
that history for people, I guess, in a political sphere? So sorry if that's a very convoluted question. I have so many thoughts in my brain, so I'm not sure if anything you want to say in any point I've made is fine. No pressure. I'm, I mean, so it, it, it really, it, touching on this problem of uh, what does it mean to be active or what does it mean to actually influence? So, so I live in a world which says if you're not jumping up and down and writing angry Facebook posts about something, then you don't care about it. Or if you don't join this protest march, then nothing will happen. Like, and so what, what I'm, instead of I'm in a world, I'm like, you know what? I actually really hate what's going on. Like, we talked weird that antichrist earlier. Like, I used antichrist language to describe a lot of American Christianity. Like, it's, it's nationalistic to the point of it's denying Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ, it's doing things that are 100% against anything Jesus said or did, okay? So I'm not saying I, I offer my rubber stamp affirmation on this. And what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to, how is sending off an angry tweet about Donald Trump going to actually change anything? I'm only responsible for the people I'm responsible for the people in my, in my room, right? So I'm trying to have a, a realistic sense of like, I'm responsible for discharging the, as excellently as I can, what's been given to me. Which I don't think that means necessarily writing yet another, forwarding yet another angry email. If you're outraged, press like. Because we're just contributing to the angry partisan bubble, which doesn't, which is part of the problem. It's not, it's not a solution, even though it feels like a solution, like it feels good. Like, I know this, and if you go and read my Facebook history, you'll see this. I, like, I succumb to the temptation as well, and, and then I've had to go back and delete some of them. I'm like, it's not that I disagree with anything I said, it's just that I think that me even saying it at all was just participating in that cycle of hate and domination and trying to dismiss people. Um, so when I say, like, I'm responsible for the people in the room, I'm not trying to be passive. What I'm trying to say is, okay, you, you, you don't like race. You think racism is bad. Great. So do I. Um, so how do we as Christians fight racism? Do we fight racism by primarily joining Facebook pages? <laughs> or do we fight racism by... Um, serving communion to each other, right? And that's how the early church did it. Like, they totally fought racism. <laughs> Gentiles and Jews, whenever you see Gentiles and Jews being talked about in the New Testament, just think racism. That's all that is. That's all that's talking about. Racial purity. And it's saying, we should mix together. And they didn't fight it by going, oh, isn't racism terrible? Let's sign a petition or let's join a march. They fought it by saying, let's eat together and do communion together. And they did, and they did fight it. And um, so I'm not saying it, it's not passive, it's just they did it in a, in a Christ-centered way. Now, now, what do you do in the face of absolute injustice when people want to, to join the march, like Martin Luther King or something? And I think then what I would say is, 
that Christians hold, one of the things we bring to the table is not that we have the right solution to these problems so much as we hold all our solutions lightly. Um, and what I mean by that is, so politics, so I mean, I don't know, what you're more conservative in your politics, is that right? Right? <laughs> is, is there somebody here who's more kind of left-wing NDP probably? Uh, maybe? No, but a minute, but so, see, right, Frank, right? So, what I would say is, you, what you guys bring to the table is not, I'm a Christian, so I know how that free market, low regulation is the way to go, or I'm a Christian, so I know that an increase in social welfare will raise more people up. That's not what we're bringing to the table. What we're bringing to the table is, I'm a Christian, so I think my being conservative is less important than my loving you, Frank. I'm a Christian, so I think that my arguments with my conservative friend are, are less important than the fact that I love him. Um, so, like, that's how we... It's not saying Christians stop being involved in politics. It's Christians hold your partisan loyalties lightly. And in holding them lightly, you are in itself showing the world the stuff that the world tells us is so important to us, we actually hold lightly to the point where almost... You, it might look like we disdain them. Um, so when Christians are convinced that they have the solution to a world's ill, um, I'm not saying Christians should stop doing that, but we have a longer view as Christians that there's more going on than just our activity in the moment. Because we also... Well, I said, you, I think you weren't here, but I said earlier on, I'm part of a movement that predates a state. Any nation you can think of, I'm part of a movement that predates it by 2,000 years. I'm part of a movement that outlasted the Roman Empire. You know, I'm part of a movement with a long view. And, uh, and, and, to, and if you're ever in a situation where somebody's like, we must act now, we must do this, and this is the only way we can do it, as a Christian, you can go, well, wait a second. I'm going to hold that lightly. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not saying all these things. But I'm just saying, like, we are big enough to see there's more than one way to solve this problem. And just because I'm not jumping at exactly the same rate that you're asking me to jump doesn't mean I don't care. It just means I'm, I'm moving at a different pace, maybe, or we're doing things differently. Um, so, and then you're responsible for the calling. You are responsible for the calling in your life at that moment. So there definitely are times when joining a march is the right Christian thing to do. But I'm never going to say that's never the thing to do. And there's also times when I've been asked to join marches and I've known that that would just be me adding my angry, futile, impotent voice to more angry people. It would just actually increase hopelessness in the world rather than the opposite. And it has nothing to do with whether I agree with what they're marching or not, because I do. I do agree with what they're marching against. I just don't think marching is, is what's going to fix it. So... It's not passive, it's just saying, I'm not necessarily going to jump to your drum. So yeah, and, but it's a, a constant ongoing conversation, a constant ongoing conversation. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm filled with admiration for the Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. Like, I'm never preaching against that. Um, and, but, but again, look, look how Jesus-centered a lot of that stuff was, right? You've got to really pay attention to, like, they were doing it by saying, we are not going to, we're going to submit to the authorities, and by submitting, that will shame them, yeah. you know? 
that doesn't happen in a lot of the culture today. That it was spawned by the success of the civil rights movement. People have learned the wrong lessons. So they're like, we're going to be like Martin Luther King. We're going to go kill our enemies <laughs> and, and belittle them and dominate them and stuff. And you're like, well, no, that was not, that's not what he did, right? So I'm, I just am always wary of, basically always wary of any group, move, any mass movement that tells, that says, join me, then I'm, the crowd is untruth, says Kierkegaard. <laughs> Wherever you find a group of people marching and shouting in unison, <laughs> you always got to be careful. Right. So. Um, the only thing I would add for myself, just from a pastoral element, is um, I consider MLK a hero. And I, I consider the tuning fork of a Christian being active is, is me being active, me increasing in self-sacrificial love. Because the nonviolent demonstrations of the civil rights movement that in my mind were the most effective both in social change and in testifying of Jesus were the ones where people put their very bodies on the line uh, for the sake of loving someone they, they were told to be segregated from. Whether it was the sit-ins where teenagers were being pulled out, shamed publicly, ridiculed, persecuted, whether it was the march across the bridge in Selma, where they knew they were going to be beaten with batons and they didn't defend themselves. Th those are very clear black and white examples, but when I feel myself being agitated and I want to be active as a Christian in the world, I always ask myself, as just a tuning fork, am I, am I, is this me increasing in self-sacrificial love for other, for enemy, for my brothers and sisters? That, that really helps guide me because, as you said, there are a lot of people that are trying to, to pull on my sense of sympathy or compassion or quote-unquote Christ-likeness to come to a political end. Like, well, Jesus was a socialist or, you know, whatever. Jesus was a capitalist, and it's like they want to... They want to move my. <laughs> they want to move my loyalty into their political agenda, and how do how do I personally navigate that? Well, I ask myself how how can I increase in self sacrificial love, and and that that helps me navigate those questions in a more practical sense. Okay, this question kind of ties into some of the stuff that we've been talking about tonight regarding uh, politics, assertiveness. Um, immigration, I mean, we're starting to struggle with it nationally a little bit in this country, and it's, be it's becoming a hot-button topic. Obviously, in the U.S., it's been a huge problem, um, d very divisive down there. Uh, in the U.K., they've had it, been having that struggle with uh, immigration, or the, I guess, the contrast of immigration with um, different people groups and ideologies clashing with each other, in particular Birmingham, different parts of London, um, and then with immigration, uh, Germany, uh, when, with the mass immigration coming out of the Middle East and uh, them having their open doors. Uh, so my question is, if someone is in a, a political position responsible for looking after vulnerable people or, or not, um, where do we set that boundary? You know, or how, where, where, you know, if, if you are, where, I guess, where do you be assertive and kind of draw that line into who, you know, letting, how much do you open the door or how much do you just, or do you set up a wall? You know, speaking from like a, a position of where 
you have people that you are responsible for to look after. Um, so, this would be one of the time. Like, I'm quite radical about some of this stuff because I can easily see that it's, it makes perfect common sense. Basically, countries, patriotism requires some level of racism, right? A country needs some level of racism in order to thrive as a country. Let's, let's say maybe that is even true. Or it needs some level of tribalism to exist. Let's say that. I can concede that that might be true. And Christians are not supposed to participate in tribalism. Like... I can see just arguing that a country needs these certain things in order to thrive as a country is not the same as arguing to me that that's what I as a Christian should be doing. So it's not at all impossible that my role in my country is to be a bit of an agent of, of almost a kind of a benign anarchy where I say, all right, Jesus is like, Jesus, wherever, you, wherever people drew a line, Jesus is always on the other side of the line. Wherever people drew a line and said, okay, this is the one, this is who's in. Jesus is always on the other side of that line. Um, with the people that religion or tribalism tried to exclude. So I kind of have to look at that and go, well, it might be true that you shouldn't have, uh, you know, unrestricted immigration into Germany or whatever. But if I'm a German Christian and I meet somebody with brown skin or with, who speaks with a Polish accent or whatever, it is my job to go against my country's best interest and to treat that person as a human being. So, you know, and I will be hated for it. And I'm like, yeah, I have committed a crime against patriotism. Tough luck. You know, deal with it. Um, so there's, what the problem is, though, in our world is not that um, the principalities, the un analyzed assumptions that we buy into is, are always dehumanizing. So this is what Christians always have to be aware of, no matter what. So bureaucracy can be an, an, an inhuman, faceless institution. Government can be inhuman, faceless. Church can be. Family can be. Countries definitely can be. And you see it all the time with immigration issues where rather than humanized, it always becomes them or a group. Um, do you know what? I love, I'm from London, and, I, and, and North Americans hear all this story all the time, and it, you always hear it about Birmingham and London as if they're overwhelmed by, by immigrants. It's not true. Th these are basically fear-mongering propaganda. It's not actually true. And also, who cares? There's more black people on a bus than white people in London. So what, right? I mean, that only hurts you if you think that being English and being white is the most important thing in the world. But it's not important to me. And, and, and if I'm part of a world that tells me that needs to be the most important thing for you, then I know I'm now in a world which is trying to dehumanize somebody. So I, I just kind of have this sense. I'm not saying like complete anarchy and everybody do whatever they want. But I'm always trying to resist all those voices which are trying to dehumanize me or tell me that the most important thing about me is that I'm a white English speaker or whatever. That's not the most important thing about me. And the most important thing about somebody else is not that they're a Turkish immigrant. Like, we can't put people into those blocks, and I am always resisting that, right? Which means that politically I end up homeless. 
because our, part, our politics is so partisan and it's so you have to think in blocks and you have to think in terms of people groups, which is part of the, this is why I say I'm radical, it's like part of the core idolatry of modern politics is that it demands that you dehumanize people in order to even exist. Like our countries require practices that are diametrically opposed to anything Jesus said. So we have fundamentally have a problem. <laughs> and so I'm like, all right, country, I'm going to live with you and I'm going to do my best. But I recognize that for you to thrive as a country requires me to disobey Jesus. And I just can't do that. So, yeah. So I don't have like, um, I don't have a Christian policy for immigration. But I would say to any Christian who has their levers on the, the power, on the buttons, or any of us who get to vote is like, don't believe the dehumanizing lies. Like, don't believe these lies. Don't believe anything that, that makes you require to think of somebody as, as not a human and as just a faceless mass. Just don't do it. Like, that's our resistance. Um, and it might lead to us some rather politically unstable, uncomfortable places to be. Yeah, Claire has a... Just a little side note on that. In, um I read an article in one of the church newspapers the other day, and it was talking about how um, immigrants coming to England from um, Syria and other countries, uh, they're, they're being welcomed mostly by churches reaching out to them. And then they're like becoming Christians. And then there are also Christians from those countries, persecuted minorities who are, go who are congregating in churches. And... English churches are being kind of revived by these people who are like just suddenly, yeah, it's totally upping the game of these churches that were just kind of, they were, many of these churches were being very socially kind, but they hadn't, they'd settled down in their faith and they weren't really experiencing Jesus, whereas actually this wave of immigration has jump-started many of them. Oh yeah, I would also point out, I'm not the first person to have pointed this out at all, but... <laughs> It's really ironic to me, the same kind of voices that are like, let's keep America Christian or let's keep Britain Christian or what, you know what I mean? They're also the same voices that are the most anti-immigrant. Uh, hey, <laughs> guess who's bringing the most vibrant Christianity to your countries? Like, I know this for sure. My, my, uh, in London, you know, if, if you want to find a Christian, you look for an African face. <laughs> and nine times out of ten, you'll find a Christian, Right? Keep Britain Christian. All right, let's bring in the Africans, right? Like, if you, and that really shows the lie of how, what they're really worshiping is there is a certain ethnic cultural nationalism. Keep Britain Christian or keep America Christian, what they really mean is to keep it white. They don't care about Christianity because if you really cared about Christianity, you'd have Syrian Christians coming instantly or Orthodox Greeks or, you know what I mean? Like, the, the, the lie gets shown really quickly in a lot of groups who, who, who are using Christian language, what they really mean is a certain type of ethnic privilege. And I'm like, yeah, I'd love to, to welcome more Christians in. It's not going to look like people like me. Because it doesn't, the, the world doesn't, Christian world doesn't look like people like me anymore. Um, just a comment. Um, I, I think sometimes when we get to this level of looking at nations and things that are being said, um, I kind of see it more as a, a principality of fear okay. because um, basically what feeds it is 
um, you know, in the essence of the question, we, we, there's a, where is the ability to protect our yeah. people? And so the inference is, is that there is, fear is the driving force that is causing uh, us to make these kind of decisions of faceless, uh, ma uh, making racism or people faceless. And uh, I think that sometimes um, we have to recognize what that is. And I guess, would you say the same thing is uh, a, a spirit of fear or a principality of fear has kind of been loosed on the earth to yeah. to be uh, to rile up factions and to create such strife well, in in life today. Yes, I mean on it's many different literally levels. true. Like, have you, do you? So you know, I mean, I don't want to get too much into it, but I mean, do you know who Bob Woodward is? So he's the journalist that exposed the Nixon, the Watergate stuff. And he's recently written a book, an extensive book, interviews, with, you know, all about Trump. Do you know the name of his book that's just come out? Fear. It's called Fear. And the reason why he called it Fear was he once interviewed Trump and, he, and uh, well, a long time ago uh, about his political aspirations. And Trump said, the way to power is through playing on people's fear. So Woodward named his book after Trump's own statement about how Trump thought he was going to get to power. And it's just front and center, literally, you just see it happening. That, that the fear is like, un, it's not even hidden anymore. It's like, I, a vote for me or for the forces that are keeping me in power and whatever is a vote against fear. And, yeah. and we sometimes use fear in the church yes. to motivate, like, the right. fire of Gehenna, yeah, the, right. the hell, yeah. the... Yeah, all through we've 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 succumbed to that yeah. motivating factor or force to get the church to get to do what it's supposed to do. Yeah. When really, if we are if our motivation was love and our focus was Jesus, uh, it's much far more lasting and yeah. far yeah. more um, fruitful. Yeah. And an inheritance for generations to come. And I think it gets yeah. sidetracked. And so I just sort of appeal to us as Christians, like we are always going to disagree. Like we are going to disagree about immigration and same-sex marriage and war and, you know, like you name it, abortion, you name it. What horrible issue is going to get raised at the Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas and it will split a family. Like we are going to deal with that. And we have to learn how to, how, so so much of the fear is like, I'm right, and if any voice is, is expressed that disagrees with me, then my whole world will crumble. I'm scared of losing. And so we have to learn how, how do we have an opinion that we disagree? How do we... You might even be right. Like, you might actually be absolutely right in all of your convictions. It's rare. But maybe you're 100% right, and you still have to submit to your, to your enemy. You still have to love them. Like... It's being right is not the end game for Christians. So we often are like, we've got the answer. So we're going to force that through and we're going to make every, silence every opposing voice and force through. Like, well, we've got the answer and you hold it out and you go, if you want to disagree with me, it's fine. I can't, I can't convince you. Like, so we take the fear out of even being right. And it's like, we can be right and not, and not require anybody to agree with us.
And that's a really hard place to be in because the fear is we really want to hold on to being right. And it's like, you know, so many Christians, we're really good. Christians are really good at using the Bible to discover, to see sin or to see evil. But then we're really bad at using the Bible or using Jesus to tell us what to do about evil. Right? So Jesus is like, don't resist an evil person. Do you know this story? Have I told you this story? Story time? So Tolstoy was this... Um, you know, war, war, war and peace. In fact, it was Tolstoy that influenced Gandhi and Martin Luther King. Tolstoy was really inspired by the Sermon on the Mount, and he's trying to take it as seriously as possible. And he wrote this really interesting story. Do we have time for the story? Um, once upon a time... All of war, of pe- well, all of war and peace tonight. <laughs> no, no, he, he, told a story. he told a story about a peasant. Once upon a time, there was this peasant, and this peasant was farming in his field, and it was time to bring in the harvest. And so he goes out into his field, and, he, uh, and he's, he, he's, he's bringing in the harvest, and he comes across a demon buried in the dirt. And the demon is sitting there, and he's throwing mud clods at the peasant, and he's swearing at him. So the peasant goes, oh, no, I've got a demon in my field. So he turns around, and he trudges back home, and he gets his, his best rope, and he trudges back to the demon. And he wraps the rope around the demon's shoulders, and then he's pulling and pulling and pulling. And the rope breaks, and he sprains his back. Oh, no. So he, tr- he limps back, and he goes to the neighbor's house, and he borrows the neighbor's best steel chain and the neighbor's horse. And he brings the horse and the chain back to the demon. And wraps the chain around the demon, and he gets the horse going. And they pull and pull and pull, and the chain breaks, and the horse's back breaks. So now... The peasant, he's sprained his back, he's lost his rope, he's lost the steel chain, he's lost the horse, he's in debt to his neighbor because he took the guy's horse and now he has to sell his own daughter into serfdom. So he sells his daughter to serfdom and now he's alone and there's no one to help him bring in the harvest and he's cold and he's lonely. And Tolstoy says, why didn't he just plow around and keep going? All the energy he spent on getting that demon out just made the demon worse, bigger and bigger and bigger. And Tolstoy very specifically ends his talk with, his story with it. Jesus says, don't resist an evil person. (laughs) And it's not saying you're calling evil good. We're just recognizing, like, part of the evil of evil is that the more you throw at it, the worse it gets. So sometimes we can just plow around and move on because we're part of a 2,000-year-old movement which is bigger and better than any thing. You know, there's, sometimes we've got to pay attention. Is this a little demon in the dirt that's going to get bigger if we keep paying attention to it? You know, and sometimes we don't have to. It's okay to recognize that's evil. We're going to ignore you, and we're going to keep going. I think, I mean, I don't have to keep answering, but I yeah. also want to release our friends because they've all been waiting here for hours while I've been talking. So. I'm going to give the last question to... If you have another question, it's nine. And I know, uh, Claire, you had a testimony that you wanted to share. Is that right? We, we would love to hear from you, so we would love to take that time. We don't, wanna, we don't want you to feel shortchanged. But I'm going to give the last question to my mom as the parental privileges. Can we keep you? <laughs> Can we come back? Yes. 